Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the PIDE webinar. We are going to start as usual on time. Um, let me begin by telling you that this is the third in our series of webinars on aid. So please mute your mics. Let the speaker speak first, then obviously everybody has a chance to speak. Uh, we begin with our usual slide to point out that how Pakistan is being chased by the dragon of IMF and full disclosure, I used to work for the IMF, so before people start jumping down my throat. Uh, but yes, we are running on the, on the chariot or pulling the chariot of IMF. Chasing loans over a very craggy landscape. And I think we seem to be in a flurry, in a crisis mode. We really don't know what we are doing. So that is always the preamble. That is a signature uh, slide that we use. Now, this, as I said, is the third uh, webinar on uh, foreign aid to Pakistan. And today we are very, I'm very delighted that we are joined with Masood, by Masooda Banu, who's written this very nice book, uh, which is called Breakdown how aid is corroding institutions for collective action in Pakistan. So Masuda Bana is a professor at Oxford and she does other work too, but this is one of a very important book that she wrote a long time ago. Uh, she's young, so not a long time ago, but a while ago. And uh, I think it's very good work. So that's why I was very keen to invite her. So great difficulty we tracked her and we've got her. Then of course, you've got Javed Ahmed Malik Saab too, who's also a well-known um, you know, uh, economist, consultant, practitioner in, in Pakistan, written a book on agriculture and a well-known personality. So I think we'll have a very interesting um, session here today. We had two before this. You can see them written up in the slide below. Yes, sir. Uh, sir, your them. slide seems to be stuck, sir. Slide is stuck again. Okay, okay. We shall go back. Uh, Zoom doesn't do much for us these days because Pakistan has lost unfortunate uh, connectivity. Um, with, okay, can you see the slide now? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Let me see if I can start the show again and it works or not. If it doesn't work, give me a yell. Okay. A very short presentation because I want to go to the speakers first as always. They are the most important things I'm just introducing. That's all. So another slide we show always is how many fund programs Pakistan has had. And as you can tell, Pakistan has had... No, sir, sir, your slides are stuck again, sorry. Again stuck, okay. Let's go back to the simple thing then, okay? Very good. Okay. So another slide that we show always is how many programs, uh, fund programs, which is the emergency ward of the international community. So as you can see, Pakistan has been in the emergency ward more often than not, and every decade of its existence. So that is a comment on us. What the comment is, I'll leave you to interpret, okay? And um, then we've got, um, where is it gone? Okay, then we go down to this. We did this on education. This is the number of policies we've had on education. We've had a policy every five years, which is also bizarre, and this is almost true in every area. So I want to remind you of that. But this is a very interesting slide that we have. This is from 1950, Pakistan Times, 1950. And our ancestors were right, they figured it out. That's, I think, Liaquat on crutches of aid. 
and there are the the puppet masters at the back are saying keep them addicted keep them addicted let them not grow up and i think the people in the window were probably right this is another slide we show always pakistan's long term growth is declining and the more of us who understand it the better of we will be we think we can build social safety nets we think we can do imf programs but our growth rate is declining so folks we got to think about it but unfortunately thinking is not something that we do in pakistan but nevertheless we've also got the lowest investment rate in the region 15% of gdp and declining and never increased that says a lot about us too i leave you to draw the conclusions we've also done a series of round tables and webinars we've tried to be as active as possible pid must be idea generating and policy generating so we thought about it we've talked to a number of people we consulted over i think 1000 people everybody says that the biggest problem is policy inconsistency and poor policy development especially tax policy everybody says transactions costs are very high in the economy everybody says our human resource management sucks we throw out talent and we are run by a set mentality both in the private and the public sector everybody says that we have no market development that we really need a de deep deregulation and a clarity in our policies everybody says energy is a mess and cities are a mess cities are a mess too so there are a number of messages that i can go through but i won't because this is a webinar on aid in the last 20 30 years almost everything have we have done is done has been done by aid when we unbundled energy it was a consultant called erg contracted by the world bank and usaid who did that for us they wrote the nepra law for us the world bank wrote the ccp law law for us our tax policy was done by tarp trp a tax reform project by the world bank our civil service reform was done by the world bank in 2005 to 7 when they sent so many civil servants to harvard to study our public financial management law was written by um oxford policy management a consulting firm for divin uh debt law was written by another consultant by again contracted by different sap and ngos i think masood um, is going to talk about them too our mortgage law has again our mortgage whatever company has been formed by donors again exim bank has now been formed by donors i could go on and on and on so it seems almost all our policies are made outside the country i don't know what we have and i would refer you to the book by dumbisi moyo dumbisa moyo who also says that aid is now the new governors of the world and the governments of the world respond to aid and not to local democracy so local democracy is kind of a sham so we got a huge amount of aid in place and it's a very paternal aid it's an aid that has mission oriented when i was in the imf we used to go to countries on missions we were on a mission to change the world who is accountable who is responsible i don't know but most important of all i think masooda will should talk about it who controls the thought industry masooda do we have our own i mean i was telling the hcc the other day close down our universities and research you don't need them because you got the aid consultants who will do everything for you how do they learn these people if it if you ask today at this webinar all our webinars we've conducted a 500 of them not a single aid agency shows up they seem to know everything from afar they don't need to listen to us this is i think going back to lord macaulay or something right yet they make policy so my questions to you people 
the panel is. Is it helping us? Is it transitory or is it going to be there in my great, great, great grandchildren's life too? Are we going to be a permanently addicted to trade? Is it, what is it dependence? Does it erode or build our domestic institutions or do they say that they build our capacity? Our capacity is being built for 70 years and we have not seen it being built. We have seen it come down. Can we outsource all our thinking? Do we crowd, does it crowd out our domestic thinking? Are our development contractors, Masuda, really that good? Is Oxford that good that it can manage our policy from afar? Is, is, is uh, Duflo and uh, Banerjee now in charge of the world? Is the advice that they're giving us really that good? I'll stop here. Over to you, Masuda. I'll take off my slides. If you want to share slides, up to you. Go ahead, Masuda. Thank you. Can you hear me? We can hear you very well. That's good. Thank you. Thank you for a very interesting introduction and setting the scene very well, because I think um, what I'm going to present uh, today is very much in line with the kind of concerns you have already raised. Now, let me see if I can get the screen, uh, share the screen, because I'm not very good with these things. Let me just quickly see. Uh, share. So I think you can see the slide right now. Is yeah. that right? Yes. All right. Um, so, um, Doctor, uh, how can I just ask one thing? How long, uh, time duration-wise? Uh, if I speak 30, 35 minutes, fine. is that fine? fine? Is that fine? So that we have some time for discussion. All right. So uh, now my slides seem to be stuck too. You know, it's fine. So no, it's like. Fine. It's fine. It's working now. Um, so like, um, which has already been very uh, nicely done in the introduction uh, given by uh, Dr. Nadeem al -Haq, um, my, I'll go straight and dive into it, which is this, that I'm going to talk more about what happens when aid comes through what is seen as a non-state sector. Uh, because I think in the preceding session, the two, uh, the, the dominant route, which is the state partnerships and the money that comes through these World Bank multilateral institutions or IMF, um, I assume they've been discussed. So the other channel through which a lot of development money comes today uh, now uh, is uh, through what we call very commonly NGOs, but the, the sector is broader. Uh, you can have multiple actors within it. So let's, at the beginning, at least call it uh, the non-state sector. Um, and what we know is that, uh, again, these figures are not 100% necessarily up to date, but the, the most recent I have access to are the ones which show that 30% of the development aid does go through NGOs, non-state actors. So it's a reasonable share of the overall uh, development money. Um, and um, to, to give you a bit of history of why development agency justify working through non-state actors, um, I'll, I'll give you a bit of history before moving into evidence of what do we see the impact of it in Pakistan and more globally. Um, and the thing is that if you look at it, um, uh, 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 development agencies, even the multilateral ones, uh, bilateral ones, have to work through a mandate. A government has to allow you to come in. So the first question is why? What gives the legitimacy for development agencies to work through non-state actors? Um, where again, they have to go through some government protocol, but it's not directly the government. They're working through non-state non actors, um, which raises, uh, which can raise a potentially a lot of issues about accountability and who they work with. So what gives that legitimacy? So basically what we know in the literature is that it's basic, uh, starting from 1980s onwards, early 1980 onwards, um, the um, uh, Bretton Woods institutions, uh, uh, World Bank and the others uh, like included um, uh, in it, 
started talking about uh, the need to work with the civil society. Yeah, the argument was uh, uh, initially a lot of technical kind of arguments were given. Uh, the, the justification was built that the states are very corrupt in most uh, post-colonial states um, uh, and that we need to go beyond the state, find more committed actors within these countries and, um, and work with them. Uh, there was also some evidence by then coming on some of the most successful civil society uh, initiatives that if you work through the NGOs and non-governmental organizations, because they are community-driven, their presumption is they are led by devout, like committed leaders, uh, so they're more uh, innovative. They work with the community, they come up with local solution, they're often low cost. I'll give you examples later on, but I'm just trying to set the scene right now. Uh, so, and they're committed to the poor, so you know they overcome the classic challenges that we see with the corrupt state in these developing countries, so let's work through that. So that was the argument built. However, uh, by early 1990s, you could already see, you can see in the World Bank and other development agency um, uh, uh, reports that there's a recognition because there was enough research by mid 1990s to show that a lot of these assumptions associated with NGOs and their ability to deliver um, cost effective, low cost models uh, was, uh, were proving wrong on the field and in the field. And um, uh, in fact, one of the very quick um, uh, references I remember, because it's uh, still a useful reference, is Edward and Hume's book on Beyond the Magic Bullet, which was already out by 1995, uh, bringing uh, papers from a conference together, where there was a lot of evidence that NGOs are not as cost effective as uh, assumed. They're very donor dependent in most developing countries. They become an elite in themselves, um, again, because of donor driven funding. Um, and, um, and that the scaling up is very difficult. So even if a model sort of works, uh, it works on small scale, a pilot, and it never goes beyond a pilot. So what's the use? So it's in this uh, duration that donors come up with another justification uh, for, uh, for um, funding NGOs. So rather than the efficiency or cost effectiveness argument, they start making a more substantial, like a um, uh, qualitative kind of argument, which is this that, oh, NGOs reflect civil society and civil society per se is good. So as opposed to just like delivery of service, now the scope of NGOs was being expanded and they were being, uh, the assumption was, oh, they strengthen civil society, um, which civil society in turn strengthens democracy. So you build, you strengthen democratic institutions by funding NGOs. Now that's a very bigger claim, uh, even bigger claim to, uh, to have, because in the first claim, efficiency argument, the claim is that they are a means to an end, you know, you have them because they give you some good efficiency uh, and, you know, outcomes, uh, which states are failing to deliver good schools, efficient uh, sanitation facilities locally, you know, those kind of things. But in the second argument, uh, the assumption is they are good in, you know, their end in themselves basically that even if they don't deliver services, just having them is good because they bring people together and they um, strengthen the democratic system. Now, this is the background. I've tried to give you the justification donors classically used. However, what I'm going to focus on today is in showing that how both of these assumptions have proven very flawed um, and uh, NGOs have become a very donor funded institution, which where there are major issues of accountability domestically um, and whose agenda they are promoting. But uh, even more uh, importantly, even the question that Dr. Hart um, mentioned that they also control the think tanks. A lot of funding that's coming through the NGOs is dictating the kind of research that is happening in these developing countries, not just in Pakistan. So as a result, which ideas are they promoted um, themselves becomes um, uh, very uh, accountable to the Western funders rather than what the state or the society might really need. But let's go step by step. 
So basically, just to sort of uh, uh, build on the civil society um, argument, um, I'll just introduce quickly two references, uh, since I assume the students uh, who might find some of these uh, references useful, is this that uh, traditionally civil society is a very dense concept. Many Western thinkers over the centuries have written about it. But the, uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, conception of civil society that the donors use uh, to fund um, you know, NGOs is a very sort of simple one, which comes more from um, uh, Tocqueville and more recently from Robert Putnam's, who was at Harvard, his work on social capital. So this is kind of work which says that civil society is good because it brings uh, people together. I mean, there are much more complex uh, Gramsci models of civil society, uh, conceptions of civil society. We won't go into that. We'll, we are interested in how the donors have framed it. And the donors have framed it in a very simple terms of uh, civil society is good because it's sort of uh, people get together. So people coming together is very important because like the in his travels in America, accredited civil society for American democracy, saying because they, America has a lot of associational culture. They have associations where which uh, at local level, community level, everywhere, people come together, they form leadership skills while leading these organizations, which then translate into democratic lobbying and democratic skills. So this is one, one uh, text they have used. The second is, like I say, is Robert Putnam. And in fact, if you look at the 1990s debate, um, uh, a lot of literature, even in development studies on NGOs, was framed with a social capital um, uh, concept, um, which again is very focused on associations. People um, should, uh, you know, people coming together, the energy they form together is useful. Volunteers are good, you know, that's what brings the societal, uh, society um, uh, uh, vibrant and leads to, uh, uh, to development outcomes. So it's that kind of argument that's built a lot. Um, however, and now I'll come to the evidence and a lot of it, my own work, which is, uh, uh, which I'll draw a lot from Pakistan, but first of all, the literature, I'll refer to literature evidence from other uh, countries as well, developing countries, and it's very sort of similarly pessimistic, uh, uh, all the evidence that we have of, um, in, of, um, uh, of the of the concerns that are coming out of NGOs over dependence on donors, there are many sort of concerns. So first of all, uh, uh, what we are finding is that this whole assumption that uh, donors can promote civil society is highly flawed because donors, um, what they do is, uh, the reason I mentioned to you Putnam and Tokoeli's um, work is just that all along the focus is on bringing people together, building trust. When people come together, they have trust, they share skills, you know, they do something collectively. The donor money, on the other hand, has done something very different. What it has done is this 30% of aid that has gone through NGOs has ended up, in fact, ended up creating these professional organizations, which become very heavily dependent on large sums of millions of dollars of donor money. And the, salary, the salaries of the senior management, the ground staff, everybody gets tied to the donor money. And then also what we see is that like big offices, all of those kind of structures start occupying a lot of like consuming a lot of that donor money. Um, and what reaches actually to the community is quite questionable. Uh, and, uh, and more importantly, uh, what we see repeatedly in this process is that, um, and, and it's, I'll give you a specific example from my own work, but even in other developing countries, what we are seeing is that because donors get very heavy, these NGOs get very heavily reliant on these donors. So first of all, the kind of work they do is entirely or uh, largely framed by what the donors are sort of asking them to do. But secondly, because they are reliant on the donor sort of cycles of money, which at maximum, even the biggest donor funded grant cycle for an NGO would be 
the largest generous one would be five to six years. So what you see is that beyond the five to six years, the organization has to move. So there's no sustainability continuity of the intervention, which as I'll argue from the evidence I have is very important. You cannot have long-term systematic change in a society or a development uh, reform without it being sustained for a decade or two. Um, that's what we are finding repeatedly in a different context. And NGO and donor funded NGO kind of work just doesn't have that kind of sustainability, long-term sustainability. So let me give you some now specific examples. I did the book that I have, uh, uh, that I, uh, that uh, Dr. Um, has kindly sort of shared with you, one of my first books, um, it, uh, gives you, you know, um, uh, this survey data, uh, but it also gives you other evidence, but I'll focus on one of the surveys uh, that I did for it. And one of the, and this one was, I focused on NGOs. Uh, I'm, I define NGOs narrowly as those which are uh, uh, heavily reliant on uh, donor money, Western donor money. And I compared them with what I call voluntary organizations, which in my view were organizations like EDI. Uh, organizations which have worked for a long time in Pakistan, um, but are mid, are locally funded. They raise local contribution and they have local volunteers. So the argument was that I wanted to see that because one is largely donor funded, do we see that um, uh, that uh, one is better at mobilizing social capital, uh, like uh, local uh, funding, local mobile uh, volunteers? So one aspect I compared between the two was the ability to mobilize local volunteers and members. Another thing I looked at with them was that also um, I wanted to compare that the kind of work they do and, it's, and the sustainability of that work, does it vary depending on whether they're NGOs like donor funded or locally funded? Um, and also thirdly, I also looked at that, is it that NGOs do more development because a classic um, justification that donors use is that, oh, NGOs do development. You might have these voluntary organizations, but they just do charity, you know? So they might open an orphan school, but that's all they do. The traditional voluntary organizations like ED and all, while NGOs do some very sort of refined development, you know, focused work, they use a language of development. So what I show you in that survey, and um, like the book is there, but it's also an article in World Development that came in 2008, and like this particular survey results, is this that there's a very clear correlation between um, organization, all the big NGOs, and I don't want to take names, but I included the, the biggest NGOs you can think of in Pakistan, uh, 20 of them across the country, and some of the biggest viewers. So we, uh, VOs, uh, because the NGOs come out a bit bad, that's why I'm not taking a name of any NGO, one NGO, but the VOs, um, one, two organization I'm giving examples examples like um, ED was there, there was sort of Al-Shifai, Trust, you know, a lot of these organizations which rely on or cancer, Shokut Khanam Cancer Hospital, all of these are voluntary organizations which are drawing, mobilizing local resources. And what I show you is that NGOs across the board, the largest NGOs you can think of, um, uh, the, if you name them, uh, they could not show you any voluntary members. So all they had was their paid staff and that the ability to mobilize the, what Patnam has, uh, and uh, Tokovili were concerned with this voluntary collaboration was not in existence. So, and also what you saw, so, uh, you see is that they don't um, have the ability to, uh, to fundraise locally is very limited uh, as compared to voluntary organizations like ED which, uh, or Cancer Hospital, which generate a lot of funds uh, locally. 
Uh, but these NGOs, the donor-funded ones, very rarely show you the ability to mobilize locally. Um, and secondly, of this argument that they do different things, and that's why NGOs are, you know, better at development somehow. There's no evidence for that that I could find because in uh, eventually they might choose when they talk to you, they might choose the language of development. So one, uh, the voluntary organization might be running a school, and not talk, telling you about the words like empowerment or um, you know community uh, like a more sort of formal uh, 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 sort of. Uh, development language but in terms of what was happening in the school was very similar if the two are doing education intervention the kind of education they were given were very similar so there's sort of that kind of evidence that i share that there's there's um, no evidence that uh, because NGOs are donor funded and uh, and uh, um, donor aligned they do better development than what voluntary organizations do while voluntary organizations on the other hand are locally responsible they respond to they respond to local needs and they are locally funded and they have local uh, volunteers so this whole concern that has in some ways that do we have to always have to be reliant on the outsider the existence of these viewers show that no that you always have this rich tradition of voluntary association and help and and culture uh, but it's just that it's been overshadowed now by these big ngos which come with big foreign money and overshadow the whole policy debate just because they know the language and they are funded by big donors and they can have conferences in the big hotels they have taken over the uh, the voluntary sort of kind of sector Secondly, um, uh, just to cover another point, is this one, the, this was more about the NGOs, but what about uh, since then, because donor, uh, and I'm giving you evidence from Pakistan, but across, uh, there's a lot of NGO literature right now in different countries raising similar concerns. So of course, the donors cannot uh, ignore all that literature because they continue to fund NGOs despite all these established concerns. So why, and so, uh, so in, in response to those concerns, uh, because they still want to fund NGOs, uh, partly, primarily because through the NGOs, they get to advance their own agenda in that society, their own concept of say when it's uh, invested a lot in gender empowerment work uh, because they want to, uh, to promote a certain kind of western conception of uh, feminism they are i do a lot of work on islamic conception of feminism but no funder would ever western funder would ever do that uh, fund that kind of a notion an organization trying to promote empowerment but through an islamic conception um, uh, which could be an equally empowering i would argue uh, but have a different conception of gender norms than the west promotes but of course uh, uh, western funders are very keen to fund feminist debates in um, uh, developing countries, um, including Pakistan, and uh, fund big NGOs uh, in that area, because they, promote, they want to promote their vision of Western and uh, of uh, uh, feminist empowerment. So of course, this is it's a very simple concern, but it's a big, you know, it's a big example to show that how money comes through the NGOs to control certain agendas, to promote certain kind of languages, or certain kinds of ways of living. Um, uh, so all of that is there. So uh, knowing that there is a lot of critique of this, um, donors are now have started promoting a lot in the last ten years, uh, like two thousand period, um, collaboration. So they're saying, oh, fine, NGOs cannot scale up; they have this problem and um, of uh, you know sustainability, this and that. So let's make them partner with NGOs because um, with states sorry because then they can bring the innovation and the states can help implement it um, at a large scale and again there's a lot of problem of motivation there because um, as we have again the, has been mentioned in the introduction we have had a lot of donor funding even through the state system over over the um, over these decades and uh, unfortunately the impact hasn't haven't been very visible the positive impact so we are seeing the same here a lot of these collaborations don't really lead to because even the state bureaucrats are cooperating for the time that the donor is giving some kind of incentives, financial incentives, there could be per diems in conferences, there could be vehicles given to the office, government offices or computers given. So they collaborate for that period because they get that, the NGO also gets their, their funding and their project. 
and the two sides work, but the norm, but as soon as the funding goes, the, that kind of collaboration disappears. And I don't want to sound so cynical or demoting, uh, uh, like negative of the motivation of all these actors, but uh, but the truth is that, that you know, there's just no evidence that they carry on beyond the, the time those financial incentives were offered. And here I'll mention to a more recent study beyond the book, uh, uh, which was run, uh, I did it with a uh, team of researchers in, uh, um, this is more, more like, uh, last six, seven years, uh, which is just that we were looking at some of the, the most successful collaborations, state and uh, non-state actors. Um, uh, uh, and we, it was not just Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Now I'll give you an example from Pakistan. And we were looking at, okay, fine. Uh, there's a lot of, we know NGOs don't deliver well. Uh, there's a lot of problem, but let's look at some of the best NGOs we have in education, health, and sanitation, um, three sectors, and see how they collaborate with the state. And here I will give example of, uh, some, I'll take the name of these NGOs because um, they don't come out bad and I picked them up because I thought they were good. So one is ITA, Bela Jamil, everybody would know in Pakistan who has done a lot of work on education. So for education, I took their NGO and after all, it's, a, it's doing good work. Let's see how, how much they can impact the government when they work together. Uh, how sustainable is their work? What's the impact? Uh, within sanitation, uh, we take, uh, took a, a Ragi pilot project um, by Akhtar Hamid Khan in uh, Karachi. And uh, third one, uh, health. We took a look at the, again, you people might be familiar with this, that PRS, uh, PRSP was given uh, these basic health units in Pakistan to take over. Um, uh, and, uh, and supposedly they delivered very well. So I, again, I don't have the time to give the details of that study. I can share them in question and answer if anybody's interested. We took, uh, we pick these uh, three because all three were apparently successful but actually the point i want to highlight right now is that actually eventually out of the three the only one that can be called meaningful collaboration long-term collaboration so that just to just to check are your slides supposed to be moving because you're stuck at the first one i think the evidence slide the evidence actually i'm covering bullet points so this is one of the big slides i won't be taking you're too right. many slides no, because no, no, no. basically i'm point three here uh, so sorry for that. Uh, I didn't split them. I just put them here. So uh, so the biggest sort of what we have is um, uh, success, the, out of the three, the one which was really successful is the Orangi Pilot Project. And anybody who knows Orangi Pilot Project knows that it's not a classic NGO. It's a, it, it's more of a, um, people think of it as an NGO, but it's really a very traditional kind of uh, voluntary organization where Akhtar Hamid Khan uh, lived by very sort of different norms. Uh, he was very cautious of the kind of donor money he might engage with. He didn't want to become uh, the organization to become dependent on donor money. He lived a very simple life. The organization itself uh, is located in a very simple call, like a, a, Langi, a Rangi area, which we, is very under and developed area and is very community embedded. While ITA and um, and uh, the PRSP model, the basic health unit model, uh, they were also effective for improving the outcomes for the time they were uh, involved uh, through that some kind of donor funding. But as soon as that money disappeared, the project sort of uh, winded down and there was no long-term sustainability of that. So uh, basically what this example shows is that, um, again, you need in order for uh, to have long-term community development projects, one thing is that the state develops. The other development thing is state is failing. So community does something, self-help efforts. Um, the organizations that can deliver are the Rangi style. And uh, it's not the, the, the ones who become very heavily tied with donor projects and then jump from one project to another and in the process have no um, sustainability. Um, and here I would just, uh, before I move the, uh, to the other side, one last thing I'll also share is that we have, um, uh, we also have uh, the other examples I can give you, but I'm saving time for discussion. So I might bring them up in, uh, in the question answer session. Is this a localizing development, a World Bank uh, 
a thick study uh, done by World Bank, uh, by Mansouri and Rao. I mean, it's, a, it's not a report, it's a book authored by them, but through World Bank, published through World Bank. Um, also acknowledges the same evidence, what they call organic participation, uh, which is the kind of voluntary organization I'm talking to you about, um, or the kind of features that Orangi had to its work, um, is the only uh, one which the show has long-term development out, uh, impact on development outcomes, community level improvements in social service delivery. Induce what they call, as opposed to organic, the induced participation, which is induced often by donor funding and all of that, fails to deliver any of these, uh, you know, long-term development outcomes. So the question is, the question I want to now raise with you, and I want to bring you back to some of the conceptual literature here, is this, um, that why do we see aid um, having this kind of impact on NGOs? Um, and, uh, um, and here the issue is that I think we have to conceptually look at the issue, and, and then the puzzle is not that difficult. And the puzzle is that in the political science and all, we have a, a, a literature which is um, uh, uh, which is very well developed literature on um, uh, on what we call the logic of collective action or the prisoner's dilemma. I mean, which comes more from economics, uh, politics, and economics. These kind of debates, but these are the uh, are the theoretical frameworks which are very powerful for understanding uh, why aid has this negative impact. Um, because uh, they make you focus on understanding individual rational behavior. I mean, these models are framed within that behavior. So they argue that people have to be incentivized uh, to, um, uh, to do, you know, if you want to take part in a collective action kind of issue, you have to have some incentive to do that. Um, and here, and uh, here uh, again, there are different kinds of uh, sort of um, uh, hard tragedy of commons. Anybody who's interested, I'm giving you references, you should be, then they're classics, they're more like 1970s, 80s kind of literature, but that's still considered actually very relevant in my argument to understand the dilemma. Also the logic of collective action, prisoner's dilemma, and the notion of free rider. Like all these things, these concepts basically they help you sort of understand that you need to understand why people, as opposed to just giving money, donor coming in and saying, oh, let's have these NGOs, and they're altruistic, they're led by devoted leaders, and they'll do the great work. You need to understand that even the leaders of these movements are motivated by some factors, like why, which make them want to lead the organization, which make them want to do a good work. And what in my own work, um, I want to argue, um, I might go back to the other slide, but what I've ended up arguing is that it actually ends up having a very negative in, in, uh, impact on the motivation of the leaders of these organizations. Um, as opposed to uh, sort of, uh, because uh, if you look at all these voluntary organizations, you do in-depth interviews, which I've done with all of them, or even uh, you read work of authors like Gandhi, who have written about their own motivation, why they do this kind of voluntary work, um, uh, is that they always would either give you some religious uh, aspirations, you know, for, in, in a country like Pakistan, if you interview Eidhi, if you interview the others, they mostly tell you, or my religion asked me to do that. So I do it for religious reasons. I'll get my rewards in the other world. Um, similarly, uh, but it's not just the religious organization. I also interviewed some Marxist, Marxist kind of organization and the leaders of those organizations who don't take aid. And the argument was the same. They do it for an inner, some kind of altruistic motivation because they feel, um, you know, politically empowered in their own mind when they do something which they are committed to instead of some kind of donor money coming in to do it. So conceptually in psychology, we have this literature which is, um, uh, 
in which talks about motivation and it draws a difference between two types of motivation. What one is called intrinsic motivation and the other is called extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation is one which is motivated by money. So most of us do a lot of things for money, for financial incentives, all of that. While intrinsic motivation is the kind of motivation I was talking to you about, your religious devotion, you know, which you do it for things that you don't do for material incentive, but they, they have an inner compulsion. Um, because you're religiously devout or you are a Marxist, you really want to believe in certain ideologies, they motivate you to do that work or that you are sort of altruistically driven and you want to do some good. So what aid, and, and interestingly, the point I want to conceptually raise is that this literature also tells you that there's an inverse relationship between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So the more you move towards material incentives, the more your uh, intrinsic motivation to do the same activity goes down. Um, and this is what I explain, I argue happens with development aid, even when it comes to NGOs, because we have evidence, and I give you the evidence in the, in, uh, in the book, one of the, in the book that was mentioned um, in my book, uh, in one of the chapters, where I give you example from Oxfam, giving money to some local NGOs in, uh, not local NGOs, CBOs, local community voluntary organizations in 1980s to in 1990s um, to help them expand their work. But in, in, instead of expanding their work, they ended up fighting with each other once the money came in. And what you see happening then is that uh, the more you, I did field work around those organizations was that as soon as money came in, the motivation of the leader started changing. Before he was doing it for for the love of God or for some recognition in the community, or, you know, some kind of inner motivation. I mean, recognition in the community is not like that, but but it's still, it was something he was trying to do for from an inner compulsion. When the donor money started coming in, incentive changed. Once you're doing it for, because somebody's paying you money and your salary to do that work, you could no longer claim the inner psychological well-being or the religious sort of rewards you, you were to gain through that. So slowly the inner motivation erodes and what ends up being is that, oh, it's money, you have to do this work because this donor wants you to do this work. And then infights start, we saw in those organizations, because as soon as, pe before people uh, came to you, gave you money or volunteered for you, because they thought you were devoted, you know, to the cause. And and they, they could see that because you were investing your time, you were investing your money, you know, energy, and you were committed. Now they could see that you have, you are getting money, you're getting cars, you're getting big offices, you're going to conferences, all these issues were raised in my fieldwork by the community. Why, why should we trust you that you are committed anymore? You give us no signals, what we call signaling theory. Like, the community gets no signals of commitment of this leader who saw NGO donor funding. And then corporation breaks down. So basically, I think I can some, I can uh, finish with this. Oh, sorry, this is now what I didn't realize that. Is this that for me, the main conceptual framing, therefore, and even in this book has been all along that we need to, in order to understand why it has this negative impact and that it can never be good for strengthening local civil society, is this that we need to understand the motivation of the initiators, those who lead organizations and the joiners, because together they form a collective group that does some kind of uh, social good. And those motivations get completely distorted uh, when um, the initiators become very heavily reliant on material incentives and that's what donors give. They give you material incentives um, and the inner, inner commitment erodes. So what you need is um, if you want a strengthened civil society, you need local organization, which was the case prior to 1970s when this donor money started coming in. There was a culture of voluntary organization, which still exists, but now is sidelined by these bigger sort of money heavy NGOs. Um, and so we need to promote that. And secondly, I think we need to, and here I'm thinking back again of the search think tanks, and because uh, again, Dr. Hart raised the issue of uh, 
is our, you know, even a search side uh, producing the kind of work we need or, uh, or is it all externally driven? And I think it's a big pity. I mean, again, in a short conversation, of course, uh, if somebody from STPI is sitting there or, you know, any of these Aura Foundation, they'll say, oh, I'm so extreme. I'm labeling all of it as negative. Um, I, I can see the nuances. They might do some good somewhere, a report somewhere, this and that. But the issue is that the bigger, they cannot deny that the bigger agendas today are set by uh, what's the big money consultancy that's coming. Who is going to tell them what to research, how to research, um, and what kind of report to deliver. So when the best of your researchers in how in country are catering to this external funded uh, research agenda, um, there's no time and energy left with them to really focus on what their country really needs. So, so these fundamentally so not just in Pakistan, we are seeing this, this recognition in the literature of aid having this negative framework globally, like in developing countries globally. Um, some uh, individual reports could be useful here and there, but I don't think uh, you can have a, a strong public-led agenda, research, or uh, civil society, um, as long as you say so reliant on uh, uh, on development aid. So I'll finish with that. It's already taken a lot. Uh, I hope Javed can come in, uh, who I, whose work I really like, frankly, uh, every time I talk to him. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing uh, listening to him. But I, back, I hand it back to you, Dr. Nadeep. Thank you very much, Masuda. That was a very good and very good, lively sum summary, very brief summary of your book. I would urge everybody to read it. It's a very informative, very good book. And I think your conclusions, I certainly am fascinated by them. And uh, certainly the issue of incentives that you raise hits home to an economist like me. And that's where I take off from that in fact, did we really get independence or did they con us? Did they really decide that like a little child, leave them alone, but we'll control them from the distant lands through our consultants, through our agents. You talked about voluntary organizations. We'll talk a lot more about that. But let me just ask Javed sir. Javed sir, where do you stand? Did we get independence? Uh, thank you very much, sir, Dr. Deem. I think we did. And uh, one of the reasons why we work very well uh, with international communities, because if you remember, 1870, Sir Ahmed Khan, he sold his house went to Cambridge University, took notes in Urdu, that's how universities work like, came back, established institution, asked the colonial rulers to give a piece of land, delivered the university, that delivered Muslim League in 1906, and that delivered the state in 1947. So, I mean, it's uh, for us to work with the international community is pretty much part of our history. I'm sure Shire from it, you remember Jinal, so he was uh, member of parliament, uh, elected in 1904, until 1947 and 50 years, he engaged throughout. Um, one of the most orthodox ones, like Iqbal, was part of the first round table, second round table, uh, Muhammad Ali Zohar, I can keep on. So my point is that um, it's very much part of tradition and culture to work with a very pluralistic and international global community, find allies. And we don't, we never had this BJP-type mentality where we start kind of accusing the entire world for what they are trying to do with us. It's a different culture and it's part of tradition. So, I mean, I, I'm not never shy of actually seeking help and learning from others and working. Uh, so, I think that, that that's a start, starting point. But I think my, I would approach this um, from a slightly different standpoint, um, that what problem we are really trying to solve. The problem we're trying to solve collectively is the underdevelopment of our country. And then we should look at what is it which is causing it? Is it international aid? Or is it the weak implementation capacity of the state? 
And I mean, it's the second thing which, I mean, because I worked for roughly nine, 10 years in grassroots organizations, roughly in 500 villages. And then the rest, the next 10 years, I worked with the chief secretary, finance secretary, chief ministers in Punjab education sector reform with EFID. So, I mean, I have both of these um, standpoints and I can very easily tell you that the delivery chain from the office of the chief minister down to the facility level is broken. And now I, my work, I work with the politicians all the time. Even the best of the politicians are not able to deliver their manifestos because you have a very, very weak implementation capacity. And I mean, you, I, I, I look, um, you have shared a slide with us where you have 13, 14 education policies. We are not bad in making policies. We're bad in actually delivering those policies. I think that's the starting point. And uh, that's what we are trying to really solve. And, and I think um, if you look at the overall aid portfolio, um, annually, even when in the best of times in Punjab, for example, when in, in the education sector reform, bank and DFID, I mean, I was running the largest education program of DFID in the world. And even then, uh, the entire our um, World Banks and our share in the total education budget was roughly 8 to 9%. So, I mean, in no way international donors can actually control your policy making and deliver it. It's actually a collaborative effort which you bring to the table technical ability and technical capacity, and together you try to kind of do few things. The, you know, from where it becomes really crucial, the problem is the way your budget is structured. In, in, in all of these sectors, you have 80, 85, or 90% of, of the budget in your own sectors, they actually is allocated to salaries. And then you're left with like only 10% of the amount with the line departments. And if they like, for example, your work or Dr. Masuda's work, they can't actually hire you. The procurement rules don't allow that. That's where, for example, if a secretary in D&D says, okay, I'm very interested in kind of, you know, re-looking at the aid portfolio in Pakistan, can you actually come in and work with me? It's very difficult for him to hire somebody. So international partners kind of bring in this additional capacity and as well as additional procurement system in which you are able to bring in some capacity locally or internationally, which actually then allow them to really work. Uh, from the standpoint of delivery, and I'll come to Masuda's point also, but from the standpoint of delivery, which is actually a very important point, because, you know, the reason why NGOs and international donors came in is the basic rationale is that your, your policies are not able to make an impact on ground. And that's why there's a case for kind of, you know, having these international bodies were coming in and then... No, that's why it's important to spend some time on it. Javed, sir, here I must, I must come in here because sure. I think we really need to clarify one thing. Are we just monkeys who must ape what is told us or can we think? The, the, the suggestion that you're making, which is very important to bear in mind, is that all policies come from the West and we are only implementers and our failure is because we to fail to implement. My question is, is donor advice very good? Are you telling me all donor advice is excellent? And if we followed it, we developed, then tell me what happened with all the advice that they've given and their own project evaluation says it was bad advice. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that we should take responsibility to deliver our own development. And we didn't really inform our civil services uh, we didn't put, put in place institutions which actually are able to kind of really um, frame policies and then design them. I mean, you look at the capacity of planning commission, the way it's eroded over time, our PND and others. Why? I mean, it's our responsibility. 
as as pakistani citizens our pakistan our pakistan electorate and pakistani political parties it's our responsibility to make sure that you know our parliamentary committees work well our planning commissions work well our pnd department the provinces work well that's what i'm saying but what i'm also saying is that you know if you go to the next level which for example if you put in place a policy i mean you have taken the case of education then to deliver that is actually a great challenge and that delivery capacity in your own structures is pretty limited and that's really a big problem and the reason is you have to have roughly six ducks in line to deliver a successful policy you have to have a political intent you need to have a policy in place then you need to have money in place but most importantly you need to have the ability to convert that money into successful programs and that's a real problem in which most of your institutions locally health or education for that matter where i work actually most of the time it's actually very difficult to really convert um, the intent of political party into successful programs now if you take the case of punjab for example the history of education reforms the story is very different from 2002 onward and before after 2002 when for example punjab government they came up with punjab education sector reform program learning from india's program other programs and then the bank was involved in roughly six to seven new institutions were developed which now have the uh, the number of children have doubled the learning levels have gone up the facilities have gone up Uh, the, the the qualification of the teachers have gone up i mean and then the key institutions like punjab education foundation um, pmiu others they're all established because you had this kind of learning from international best practices you had you know, ability to kind of then evolve those now you pick the balochistan province for example where you didn't, we have only local for example uh, expertise were there and local and they couldn't do it and the reason is that your own structures and the bureaucracy doesn't have that ability to really develop these institutions and that's a big problem for example institutions like punjab education foundation where you have now 3 million children study through public private model has become really a model for developing countries for improved access and quality at a very very low cost and you could only do that because you were able to learn from other developing countries or places like chile other places which actually most of the international community was able to develop it so i mean this is a, this is very important that in the real uh, sense where you want to have indigenous capacity indigenous delivery whether you have the those capacities in in your system or not now the second point of voluntary action which dr masuda talked about um i i agree with your broad point but i think the second point is that for example where it comes to practicing participation in professional manner uh, the welfare center organization really didn't have that particular professional lens and that's why you had to have rural support network or rural support other networks and they were able to practice participation at large scale level you have access to finance program other programs and why you have to have these programs the reason is your political parties don't like local governments at all i mean most local governments came from military dictators most elected governments unfortunately couldn't really come up with the local government structures uh, today is important day to talk about that because yesterday 31st august sindh was the last government to have any form of elected governments now even that province doesn't have now in pakistan uh, you don't have locally elected local governments now what happens what happens and i'll just finish in 3 minutes 2 minutes what happens in that case when you don't have local government structures in place the state generally designed from colonial angle and at the village level the state is really absent i'm talk about that in my book also 
Now, when the state is absent at village level or at a local level, then, for example, you citizen not left with anything. The participation then doesn't happen on its own because welfare-focused organizations can only do a certain services. I mean, for example, um, a disability facility or a local. But when it comes to integrated development, you have to have some a program in place where a local catalyst actually mobilize villages and others and kind of come up with some structure to develop deliver integrated development. And that's where most of these rural support programs, which again, by the way, government of Pakistan really facilitated, but again, it was developed on the basis of international best practices and, and, and some of the donors only supported it. So uh, my, 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 my essential point is, Dr. Nadeem, that, you know, we as a nation should be responsible to de deliver our own development, but we shouldn't make international aid community as an enemy. Uh, for example, we were framing a wrong kind of, you know, enemy here. What I'm saying is that the, the real root cause is that you got to reform the civil services, you got to kind of uh, make your parliamentary communities to have access to research, you develop the oversight capacity of the parliament, you put in place the local government, and you would then be able to kind of deliver the 90% of the aid budget, which you really do well. And, 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 and so that's where we can pick up from and, and, and come back again. Thank you. Masooda, I'll, I'll come back to you and Javisab both. Let me ask you a simple question. Javed Sab says we should frame the questions such that they are not our enemy. We should be nice. We should play nice boys. We should play nice people, etc., etc. Yet, it is all right for the aid community to call us corrupt. Where is the evidence? The evidence is formed by Transparency International. And that, Masuda, I think you should know, at least I know, was funded by the World Bank, through a trust fund, through DFID and other aid places. Transparency International is as much a donor agency as anything else. Then again, think of all the NGOs that donor agencies have formed. Even places like, for example, IFPRI, like places, for example, Network for Global, whatever. There's so many of them that they've formed, which all gang up together to tell us that we are bad. The last World Bank report actually had sections in it saying how the military is bad. Yet we can't be critical of aid. I find that somewhat difficult to accept. Can we critique aid, Masuda? And is aid above Transparency International ranking? I've called Transparency and asked them, can you please rank aid? For example, have you studied the aid contracting process? Javed Sab, you were a part of it. PID can't bid. Our universities can't bid in that process. Oxford Policy Management, ASI, Chemonics have a monopoly. They don't consult with anybody else. They only work with it. Is that clean? Masuda, first you, then Javed Sab. Can you tell us whether this is a clean process? No, I actually am with you because I don't agree. I mean, I generally like uh, Javed's um, uh, sort of uh, viewpoints and I really sort of, we have a lot of useful discussions, but here we do differ because um, uh, uh, first of all, the fact that we can question it for sure, I would say for sure, because if, and I'll give you one very simple example, which is this, that we all know that, uh, which I didn't go into at all because mine was a more focused agenda today, looking at how it impacts collective action, but we all know the politics of it, that what the governments choose, to, which countries prior why different goes towards northern Nigeria and Pakistan when militancy is high there? You know, it's a lot of political agenda rather than education and health being the criteria. So, of course, who, which country to support, first of all, is a political um, agenda. But secondly, I myself was part of a research mission uh, 
search mission in the sense because again it was a world bank led education report we had to do and me and two three british consultants were in in 2009 uh, doing field work with all the donor agencies uh, looking at um, uh, the uh, the gap uh, sort of education program and at that time it was very clear all the informal meetings with the with the you know defit staff the british british uh, education officer and um, in defit or uh, norwegian offices and all they were all very clear that right now our education priority the budget we give to government on education is subservient to getting access to security concerns. We want access to the military in the northern areas, all of that, um, you know, in, in not, not northern areas, the tribal areas. So a lot of the donor money, which was apparently for education and all, was negotiated on basis on how much access you'll give us. So you should know, Javed, there are some very fundamental issues. The kind of examples you gave us, historical ones, Jinnah going, that's a very different thing. I'm sitting in Oxford today, not because somebody has funded me to sit here, it's because fine intellectual ideas are there, I want to take them, but independently blend them in my way and bring them back to Pakistan. So I talk about Islamic feminism as opposed to Western feminism because I combine the two sides. I'm free to do that. If I were, When I do a consultancy report, which I do from time to time, I cannot talk about Islamic feminism because the terms are bound. So do you understand there's a big difference? And Jinnah and all were engaging in the way I like to engage as an academic. As a consultant, you just don't have that freedom to give those kind of free ideas. Because your, your parameters are set by the donor, what they want to get done. Secondly, also, I have a lot of issues here. That, you know, when you give us these examples of oh, all these successful Punjab was successful, first of all, those evidence are very contested. I'd say uh, like this uh, Babar Ali, whatever his name was, not Babar Ali, what's the name, the British education consultant, uh, which was used a lot in that period. Michael Barber. Michael, Michael Barber. Barber. Exactly. Some people say, oh, he did miracles in uh, Punjab. The other ones also give you evidence saying it was all, uh, you know, a waste of money. So when you give us examples of some schools were improved, for, at what cost? I've been part of an advisor on a different program in northern Nigeria for eight years. And I've seen like 100, it was a 150 million pound project by the end of it. And in the end, when we were leaving, I did a very successful Islamic Quran school intervention there. But for the money that we put in, the results, did they match? No, because there was no long-term sustainability. And it's a very classic problem. Very good intention consultants also cannot achieve the state system because the problem, as you say, lies at the state level. You know, state has to fix themselves. And, and that's my biggest concern, that these donors come along and they, they cost a lot of opportunity cost to your civil service because they come up with their multiple competing ideas. They give them incentives. I saw that in Nigeria all the time. Um, you give them incentives, the, the chief minister will come to your conference. You make them stay in the posh hotel, give them him a 50,000 naira kind of per diem per night. He'll happily come. He'll endorse the policy for the time being. But, uh, but then another donor will come, UNICEF will come on education and to lobby another policy. He'll go and do that too. And in the end, at the end of five years, a lot of money wasted on the donor part. But maybe it wasn't wasted. Maybe that's what they wanted. Just a bit of clout in that period. While at the end of it, the, the state is at the same level and, and, the, and the bureaucrat is even more confused because he has been chasing 10 different donors, not chasing, in fact, benefiting personally but not at the state level. So, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity costs you have to see of these donors coming in with the ideas and, and lobbying your civil servants and politicians to do things rather than they, they be, the state needs to look internally. What's the, the priority? how best they can fix it. And I don't think you need so many programs. That is the problem, in fact, because I think solutions to a lot of these problems are technically not that difficult. To run a good school eventually doesn't take miracles. Pratham example tells you it's a very simple one. Our own successful examples show that. It's just that you need to have a state commitment and donors, in fact, take away that state commitment, then build it. That's my concern. So I leave it there. I mean, I understand. I fully understand. That's what I meant. When I when people listen to me, especially those who work in the development sector or are used to it, will see the other side and say, like, oh, no, we do some good. We do these useful programs. But in the bigger scheme of things, they don't pay off. That's my view. So I'll finish. Javed, sir. 
No, I, I think this donor also have to respond. I mean, especially the procurement process in which local universities cannot bid that should be reformed. Even actually, and they and, and 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 EAD and others can make rules actually where, for example, they can make it conditional to aid that then only local firms could bid or local universities could bid. I mean, that could be done and that should be done. And local I mean, locally, the capacity people of I mean, there's a lot of people who could actually work with, with that's that's a different thing. But my point is that, and, and, and this is again, I mean, framing this, the real no, problem Javis is... Sir, let me, Javis, since you are here, let me ask you. You worked with DFID. What is the average size of contract that firms like ASI, OPM, I don't want to, you to divulge any information that's whatever. What is the average size of contracts delivered to firms like this? I mean, 90% money still goes to the government. I mean, for example, the portfolio I was leading What is in, the average size of money that is allocated to these people? That's what I'd like to know. Because I hear they have, for example, I can tell you right now, ASI has a seed project, whatever seed is, in KPK, worth 20 million pounds. There are so many projects that have, Chemonix, for example, has $100 million worth of project. One project for $100 million. No Pakistani university has even $2 million. So what are we talking about? How can we compete? You tell us that we should own ourselves and we should implement. How can we do that? If there is so much money, take for example another thing. Just now there's a project coming on Souda. World Bank is doing a $125 million project on Pakistan going global, global, which is going to be consulting studies given to these firms. Now, how do we compete? Please tell us, Javed sir. No, I mean, we were running central budget support, uh, Dr. Nadeem, and, 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 and Dr. Nizam is also around because he's also like working in Punjab at that time. I mean, it's like 90% money actually goes to the government budget itself, and then government actually through their own budgetary support to various sectors, they allocate money, and then people like us work with government to make sure that this money actually travels well, allocated well, is monitored in everything space. And I completely agree with you that the privatization of aid, aid which have happened in the last like 10, 15, 20 years in which most of these international firms have started winning projects and, and, and coming to developing countries, that should be stopped. And um, uh, Pakistani firms and Pakistani national institutions as well as uh, they should be able to kind of bid for this money. So, I mean, uh, that is where we don't have any dispute. Okay, fair enough. Let me bring you to this. Uh, Masuda, let me share this screen with you. I hate to advertise my own work, but I did this some time ago, uh, two, three years ago. Mullah-led development. This appeared in many newspapers through Project Syndicate. Uh, and I took exactly what you're saying, uh, Afia. I said liberals like us are losing the battle because of exactly what you said. We run NGOs. We work on donor agendas. I get my per diem. I work on a donor agenda. I print out a report. Donors read it. Hardly anybody reads it in Pakistan. But the mullah actually has voluntary associations that you are talking about. They have those voluntary organizations. The mullah is a social entrepreneur. He actually goes out, looks for masjid ka chanda or funding, wherever he can. He gets no top-down agenda. He gets a bottom-up agenda. Exactly. So he is winning. We are losing. Would you agree? I agree in the sense that... Uh, no, I agree fully with the analysis that that's where... Uh, he, like I, what I don't know is what's his agenda. That's another thing I can comment. But the thing is that yes, he's definitely he's the one embedded in the community. He's the one who has trust. He's the one 
who people who's able to mobilize the people and to be honest the good ones among them do do some good services for the community too for sure um, so uh, so no i agree I'm, that's the thing like if, if you want community embeddedness you have to be embedded in the community it's the same thing with orangi like it, it was it is very embedded in the community historically was uh, but but i think where javed is coming in he's just looking at bigger projects of different kind that you know where i'm still cynical but do you understand that's a slightly different kind of comparison okay fair enough thanks no i was the deputy chairman of the planning commission so i know how things are done and i can tell you honestly the donors lead the agenda we don't but i'll exactly. go to nizamuddin saab who is former vice chancellor gujarat university ex un official former chairman of punjab higher education now chancellor of another university nizam saab Nizam Sab, unmute. Up, thank, thank you very much for giving me the chance. I really enjoyed the discussion. Very open, open, very candid. I just wanted to clarify what alternative we have. I think voluntary organizations are not alternative. They are not there. And I think the the Kurungi town was not a voluntary organization. It's a special special arrangement by the, by. that time with the bank bcci bank and others funded them but i think we what we need to do provide the donors an alternative structure that can implement they are they are fed up with the government in inefficiency because they don't implement on time they don't give them the results so i was sitting in the chief minister's office every month on on the education agenda which which defit was funding heavily for school projects they were not funding university projects but school projects and they're using the punjab education foundation punjab government departments and and mckinsey group coming from dubai prepared the reports evaluation reports for the chief minister which actually with with a good plotting and diagram and description then he was happy that we are doing very well that uh, that kind of work would have been done by the government of india but somehow it was being done by mckinsey group question i have to ask what are the alternatives we have available if you don't want to use the term ngo although the ngos and pvos and npos are really interchangeably used in pakistan but you have very nicely distinguished between ngos and pvos and voluntary organization there are not many voluntary organizations without interest or profit interest or benefit interest the madrasa led mulla led maybe but they also have interest of their own the mullahs have their own benefit also as well so you can't take out the personal benefit or personal interest in the pvos or voluntary organizations or ngos the distinction is i think is not very clear it will be difficult to maintain fair, fair actual... let me take tahir dhinsa now i'll come back to you in a couple of questions tahir dhinsa tahir sahab bol rahe hain ki nahi unmute kare unmute Sir, sir, there's something wrong with your system. Re-read, enter, re-enter. Shafkat Abbasi, sir. Uh, Assalamualaikum. Uh, I am Shafkat Abbasi. Uh, I am from Indonesian Organization, Number University, Islamabad. I have a question about uh, uh, about uh, financial aids linked with my field, Indonesian Organization. 
Okay, uh, this is a basic alarm for that. Uh, their organization, they are waiting for AIDS. Basically, countries, uh, countries have lots of issues for their domestic issues, international, international issues. They, uh, they are banned on the AIDS program. What do you think about like uh, United States of America, banned on the WHO? This is a political issue, but they are banned on the financial bank, uh, WHO. What do you think about the future of uh, AIDS and international relations, like uh, like increase of populism, nationalism? What do you think about it? Thank you so much. I didn't quite get that. Shafkat Sahib, sir, up. ऊंचा बोलेंगे जरा बताइए फिर से मुझे नहीं समझ आया आपको समझ आ गई मसूदा चले सर दोबारा पूछ लें सर जरा अच्छी तरह स्लोली पूछें स्लोली शफकत साहब डिफरेंट कंट्रीज बैन ऑन द एड्स ना बिकॉज़ देयर डिफरेंट इश्यूज द डोमेस्टिक एंड इकोनॉमिकल इश्यू लाइक लाइक दिस पेंडेमिक इश्यूज Many countries ban on the AIDS, like uh, Donald Trump, uh, WHO, uh, ban for the AIDS to WHO. What is the future of the uh, uh, AIDS? Like, okay, what is the future of the AID industry? Okay, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Yes, okay. Yes, <clears throat> Let me go back to Masooda and Javed for answers to these questions. Go ahead, Ji. Javed, sir, would you like to go first? Um, सर जो शफकत जो जो मजमुई तौर पे दुनिया में एड इंडस्ट्री है वो तेजी से एक ऐसे दौर में गुजर रही है जहां लोग अपने जैसे एफसी एफसीओ डिफिट के मर्डर से मर्जर से पता चलता है कि एक एड वुड बी नाउ मोर काइंड ऑफ प्रायोरिटाइज ऑन पॉलिटिकल बेसिस यूज्ड टू बी टेस्टेड एज मसूदा मेंशन बट नाउ इट्स एक्चुअली मच ओपन एंड देयरफॉर Uh, this FCO and and in USAID already the aid is merged in the Foreign Office. I mean, so most of the Foreign Offices, um, it has become a tool of international uh, foreign policy now for most of the countries. So therefore, that is one thing which is happening. The second trend is that aid architecture is changing. Also, so you have now these new foundations coming in: Bill Gates Foundation, other foundations, Facebook Foundation. Other, they are actually way more stronger than. Um, Uh, these uh, bilaterals also, and they are also coming up with their own models, and they are coming with, with more private sector approaches. So therefore, the reliance on community structures and the government structures now are coming up with a more different financing model, which I think actually takes a lot of time and doesn't really deliver much. But that's actually this is the early time in which they are experimenting with these new aid modalities. Um, NGOs का भी जो दौर है पाकिस्तान जैसे मामलिक में अब तेजी से उसमें कमी आ रही है मिसाल के तौर पर अब 19 लॉज हैं जो एनजीओ को गवर्न करते हैं और 2015 के बाद पाकिस्तान में बेशुमार एनजीओ बंद हुए हैं किसी भी एनजीओ को अब इंटरनेशनल के बगैर वो काम नहीं कर सकते और जो चैरिटी कमीशन बने हैं सूबों के अंदर हर नई बैंक ट्रांजेक्शन के ऊपर भी अब एक तरह से डिफिकल्टी है तो मेरा ख्याल है कि काफी सूरत हाल ऐसी है जिसमें डॉक्टर नदीम जो पुश करते रहते हैं हमें इट्स एक नया मुकाबले की तरफ बढ़ना होगा कि पाकिस्तान में जहाँ पे स्टेट स्ट्रक्चर रिफॉर्म जो है वो नहीं हो पा रहा और जो वॉल्ट्री स्ट्रक्चर है वो सो रहे हैं तो आप किस तरह से अपनी 
के आप एक लम्बे के लिए इंटरनेशनल एड को बोल रहे हैं आप ओवरऑल नब्बे फीसद बजट हमारे पास है ना जो बानवे फीसद हमारे पास हम करते हैं कैसे हम उसको ऐसे खर्च करें कि हम अपने लोगों को ह्यूमन डेवलपमेंट इंडेक्स को जो है वो बढ़ा सके तो ये हमारा एक कौमी सवाल है जल्दी बोले ताहिर साहब ताहिर यू कांट ओके बोलिए बोलिए वेरी क्विकली मसूद साहब and whole of the distribution network was designed for the area of fata where uh, this uh, organization uh, these mnas and ptm they are uh, working and the issue of the durand line was and till very late us was uh, holding seminar and uh, doing that now they in papers only they have changed okay that conversion session would be there then again when the on electricity the world bank and all the consultant was working to bijli pakistan ki bahut issue hai energy is the deficit they were working on generation and even a layman would know that the real issue is distribution and transmission and from the day, i personally think that from the day one it's the political connotation that brings corruption and grand example okay. is that 20, last word the 20% of building this indus water treaty dams and canals in pakistan india was made to pay that because pakistan would enjoy a great influence in the west at that time now i think this uh, ngos would when the aid would come to the new block that is china and eurasia or shanghai corporation i think that would become all right it will once again like 60 contribute thank you khuram saab khuram saab quickly ये फोरम साहब आई यू देयर ओके फोरम साहब इज नॉट देयर सो मसूद आई विल कम बैक टू यू कैन यू टेक दोस क्वेश्चंस कैन यू प्लीज आल्सो आंसर फॉर मी इफ यू कैन ये जो है सारी बात वॉलंटरी एसोसिएशंस एनजीओस की बात है आई मीन फंडिंग आल्सो डिटरमिनेस व्हाट द एनजीओ डस टेक द एनआरएसपी फॉर एग्जांपल यू मेंशन द पीआरएसपी they were supposed to do rural development they moved into microfinance education so many things so as the funding changed they changed and we don't know whether what prsp is now whether it's a you know a cow tiger lion whatever it's just another agency that ngo that absorbs funding now is that good governance is that the way we should go so our universities are dying masuda our universities should be just let them die and let all policy be made by oxford policy management adam smith international cambridge analytica i mean how should we operate 
Go ahead, Masuda. Yeah, exactly. So on this one, I'll take the last your comment first, and that, and that's exactly the concern. Even in the at the very small level, that's what I was showing. It's the shifting, and and that's where Javed and I can see Dangle. He's coming from where I'm raising the concern. Is this that? Of course, if you look at a specific intervention in the given time frame, often you'll say, oh, something at least good came out of it. It wasn't all bad in that program. But the problem is that with this shifting priorities, that short-term kind of good doesn't lead to much. So you know, so that that is a genuine problem. We cannot sideline. It because it's mentioned all the time, but then set aside, you know, even that okay, fine, there is this problem of shifting priorities with donor money and all, um, and PRSPs and all, exactly. Because otherwise, would they move into all these areas? Not necessarily, they might have prioritized one or two and done them well. But now, wherever or if it comes in, oh, let's do this a bit of microcredit as well, they do that, they do a bit of that, and then it's everywhere. And I have done a lot of field work with all these different organizations over time, and, and there's just no way or a foundation or PRSP or any one of them can deny how their programs come to close when donor money closes. And they shift to a new one. You know, it's just there's just no way around it. So anyway, that's the last one. I mean, that's about the last uh, uh, question. But just to go back, in general, I think with all this question about future of uh, aid, uh, Javed, I think has addressed that good one. I don't have much more to add to it because yes, modalities are changing. New, like even these Bill Gates and all are coming in. Uh, the foreign office kind of stamp is becoming more obvious, even in the UK. US, it was always very foreign office uh, labeled, but now even DFID is uh, getting a more explicit foreign office label. So all these things are happening. And I agree also that NGOs are getting more tightly sort of controlled in Pakistan. But again, I don't know whether all this regulation, that's overboard too. Maybe you don't need so many regulation. You want to encourage local participation. If you do have so many laws restricting everything, people might not even form any kind of voluntary organization um, because getting paperwork becomes so difficult. So I think we have to be a bit careful about the paperwork that's developing around NGO. Like, because I'm not concerned that much about NGOs, but but voluntary organizations are regulated by the same law. So you, you should not stifle them by making regulations so tough. But international money coming into NGOs should be fair enough fairly regulated and if that's happening that's okay and I think the first question about, I think the other example about the, the electricity grid and all was more an example endorsing something I'd said, which is that donors go in with their political agenda. So I think I don't have much to add to that. I'll only respond to the first question, which was explicitly about the definition of NGOs and VOs and all. Um, see, I agree uh, with this, uh, the, the way you are thinking, you or even Javier made this comment that, oh, but VOs do different kind of work that they might not have come up with this posh PRSP kind of network labels, all of that. But the thing is uh, that um, for the objective they set out, they normally deliver it well. And they can mobilize local money. It might be zakat money, all of that money, but pots of money exist in different form of way um, uh, in locally. And you also have a lot of voluntary capacity. You are a human uh, youth, a bulging youth population. If you mobilize them effectively, you can get a lot of volunteers, a free manpower in to do things. And you build the capacity in the process too. So I think you have to start thinking a bit imaginatively. Gandhi did not wait for, uh, a, like we associate the most strongest form of community, you know, a networked integrated kind of community development model, holistic one with Gandhi. And he was not waiting for donor money to do it. It was a very localized indigenous model, just like Rangi. You might not call it VO, but it's for sure not a standard NGO. Um, it's registered at a voluntary organization. And of course it got money from uh, what this bank we had, the CCI or whatever. And I'm not against that money, but that money is not the same as a Western development agency 
see money. You have big philanthropists. You should take money from them, whether they are banks or whatever. That's legitimate money because there you normally control the agenda. We are talking about agenda of development agencies, which are tied to Western governments, and they come up with their own multilateral uh, institution and their own agendas. Uh, uh, BCCI, I doubt, had that kind of uh, private philanthropy. Doesn't have that kind of uh, normal agenda. Um, uh, so that's a different game. So I, I in my mind, Orangi is a very classic view. Um, more of the Gandhian style kind of view, and uh, and and you could you had that historically. You need to revive that culture to the extent possible. But of course, all the solutions are not going to come through them. Resources are needed. But the thing is, I think development money. I'm not against development money if you could control the use of that money. But when you're so weak that you become subservient to that money and you start losing your own institutions, in fact, in the process. Just like I agree, I have a big concern with the universities, the deteriorating capacity of the universities, the research capacity of the universities. Our students are not being trained. Um, you know, to have that kind of research, uh, to do the right level of research, which can be you lead to right kind of policy and all, while they are very capable. The same people who study in these universities. I was graduate Kaidi Azam at one point. I went to Cambridge. I went to Oxford. All of that, and of course, the training there changed my abilities. But why cannot we bring some of the training back home? It's just that a lot of this donor money, why it you know is gets exactly channeled to these think tanks, and and I personally feel a lot of money does go back to OPM and these kind of institutions because I work occasionally to consultancies with them, and exactly a major chunk of the money is coming back for them to pay all these international consultants, and I'm part of some of the. Teams at times. Um, so all I'm saying is one knows the system, just like uh, Dr. Nadimulak says he knows the system because you're part of it, and and there are challenges there. Mm, I see them. That's good point. Thank you, Javed Sab. Um, let me come back to you very quickly, or let me take these two questions that have come up, and these will be the last questions. After that, we'll mm -hmm. close. Raza Sab, Raza, Raza's iPhone. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Raza. आर्किटेक्ट बताइए रजा साहब जी मैं तो सिर्फ ये कहना चाह रहा हूँ जी कि इस कॉन्वर्सेशन में ऐसा लग रहा है कि जैसे कोई ये कोई नई चीज है फाउंडेशन आई आपको तो पता ही है फोर्ड फाउंडेशन प्रॉब्लम वॉज द फर्स्ट दैट केम इन अर्ली फिफ्टी मतलब मिड फिफ्टीज में दे वो वेल इंट्रेंच इन पाकिस्तान सो द कमिंग ऑफ दीज फाउंडेशन गेट्स एंड अदर्स इज नथिंग न्यू फॉर अस एंड वीव बीन थ्रू दिस number 1 number 2 it is also said that um, i don't know much about usaid's working inside workings but i have worked um, you know beginning as sort of when we were in england starting you know about 50 years ago and the foreign and commonwealth office very tightly controlled the flow of not only the uh, use of money of the but also the flow of money and who came in very much was controlled by the foreign and commonwealth office so this so called politicization that is being talked about is uh may have gone into the background for a few years but was very much part of the agenda of uh, correct of the, yeah. uh, so it is it was never a thing ke ji wo ab politicize ho gayi politicize hai aur hai political aid to political so that's why i raised the point earlier did we get independence or not Well, I don't know whether we did or we didn't, but we certainly never got independent of the foundations. We never got exactly. independence from the from the exactly. uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office or Fair. from the State Department. Fair point. Thick. Fahim Jahangir. Fahim Jahangir is another person who's done some work on aid. He was a, a panelist on the first aid webinar. So, Fahim, can you please tell us 
former PID. We, uh, thank you very much. Very interesting debate. I'm really enjoying that. Thank you, Masuda, for joining us and Javed Saab. I just wanted to actually just contribute in the debate by showing a slide. Fahim, come closer to the mic. We can't hear you very well. Uh, can you hear me now? Ah, better. Is it better now? Hmm. Okay. So I'm just going to share a slide, uh, which is if, if the host can allow me to share. Uh, I'm still not able to share. Rahim sahab ko share karne de bhai. Okay. So let's see. Can you see that? Okay. Hmm. Go ahead. Uh, no, this one. Ji. So, uh, an earlier uh, graph I shared in my presentation last time uh, when I was hmm. uh, making my presentation. So, this hmm. uh, graph actually shows uh, the donors' activities in Pakistan via government and other hmm. channels, which include the private channels and NGOs and hmm. all other hmm. contractors in 2018. Hmm. So you were asking Javed Saab about the activities of UK in Pakistan. So there it is. Uh, in 2018, according to the OECD uh, data, they had 284 activities. Uh, and most of those activities were conducted through other channels, including the private right. sector. And, uh, and the average size of uh, the disbursement, average pro uh, project disbursement of uh, DFID was 1.65 million dollar uh, in 2018 and if you look at uh, uh, all the most of the bilateral donors you will see they uh, actually enjoy to work with uh, the partner organizations or local development partners or you call the ngos or other organizations and as masuda was mentioning that uh, around 30 percent of the total aid goes to the uh, private sector channel uh, i remember hina rabani khar uh, talking to uh, the audience at the Pakistan Development Forum in 2010, I don't have the recent number. At that time, she quoted the number 53% of the aid. 53% of the aid was channeling through the private sector, outside the government sector in Pakistan. So there are numerous development partners operating in Pakistan, and uh, they are actually executing donors' agenda in the country. Uh, and they are doing so because uh, these partner organizations or NGOs, they do not and they will not get any fund from the donors until and unless they have their uh, uh, operations and activities in line with the donors country strategy program. So if a donor is willing to invest in some project on women empowerment, and if NGO uh, doesn't have women empowerment in uh, its agenda, they will not fund that NGO. So that's how it works. And, uh, and for my research, I was trying to, you know, uh, uh, get the numbers, the exact numbers of uh, these uh, NGOs operating in Pakistan. I was unable to get uh, uh, the exact numbers of active NGOs. And my question here would be like to, uh, with these uh, donors, uh, and, and yes, if you try to register these donors, whenever the government tries to register these active donors in Pakistan, 
that bilateral and multilateral donors will come forward and resist. They will take part in resisting this uh, campaign to resist. So my question is how to make them uh, more accountable in a sense to make aid more effective in Pakistan. Good point. Good point. Very good point. Javed sir, yes. let me come back to you, but let me, Javed sir, I'll do a little bit of a story in the middle. You said that civil service reform. I'll tell you, when I was in the planning commission, I made civil service reform central to the framework of economic growth. You'll remember that. The reaction of the World Bank, vice president at that time, Isabella, I'll even name her, and DFID. I'll even name your guy, the Pakistani guy, Sikandar, who was there, right? These guys was, no, we don't want a civil service reform. And they sided with the civil service saying we shouldn't have a reform. Secondly, they also um, determined, for example, they determined whether there should be a demand for civil service reform or not. They'll come in with their capacity development project. They'll come in with their project, which will reduce the demand for capacity. When you say hire a consultant from outside without a civil service reform, you know we can't hire a consultant from outside. Right. And at the same time, what donors will say, hey, we can't have a civil service reform. You can't hire a person from outside. We'll put in PEPRA rules now. Now, PEPRA rules have made it even more difficult for us to do anything at all, because we are supposed to be the corrupt guys, whereas PEPRA rules don't apply in the donor organizations. They will not allow our universities to compete. Now, tell me, we are being dumped upon in our own country. Javed, please tell me, how do you square the circle here? First thing we, I mean, as if, and, and, and I think you, you have access to um, uh, kind of, you know, Pakistani uh, decision-making structures. It's, it's, can be, it's actually quite easy to make donors to really ask them to only allow Pakistani universities and Pakistani firms to build. It's not difficult, to be honest. If it is made part of EAD, meet every second month to every donor. And there's a partnership agreement, and donors cannot work without EAD partnership agreement. And there are clauses in it. Very easily, Pakistani parliamentary committees, Pakistani politicians, policymakers, and 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 I, I would welcome that. I would I've never lived abroad. Actually, all my life is spent here, and very happy to work with you and others. I mean, this is really not a big problem. In terms of accountability, Doctor uh, Fahim, uh, Dr. Fahim, accountability. Pakistan established a great organization called Pakistan Center for Philanthropy 15 years ago, and its actually mandate is to certify every international and local NGO, and they have a very comprehensive six-month process to do that. The problem is that Pakistani state didn't really give it a teeth. I mean, they just gave them a very loose mandate. They can very easily make it mandatory for PCP to go and actually look at every aspect, even value for money, even all of these aspects of international versus local staff, even around, uh, you know, making them to align with Pakistani development priorities, they can actually do that. And I'm actually failed to understand why they don't do it, because, you know, even international NGOs are lobbying to the government that they should make PCP a central organization to do that. The reason is, now government has asked Ministry of Interior to regulate international NGOs, and Ministry of Interior only look at NGOs from the standpoint of security, and they don't have capability, don't have economists or others who actually look at these institutions professionally. They have only, you know, law, law enforcement bodies. And that, that's not even helpful for Pakistan also, because, you know, you don't have real data analysis capacity in others. PCP, on the other hand, have experience of working in the sector for the last 15, 20 years. They've done it with thousands of organizations of data. They can analyze it. They're very professional. 
and just by one notification which for example government make it conditional that pcp if it doesn't certify an ingo a local ngo it won't be able to have fund this problem can be solved in one week you know so that's and the third bit is you mentioned that why ngos have their own agenda look ngos are also very different many are formed by individuals they have their own mandate or interest they want to work on a particular issue they come to a country they say oh we would work on only child development or only what brothers and you know they then make it conditional that in order to deliver project that should be, you know so that's that's like kind of a social enterprise how it works and that's how the market conditions are but i'm i mean if for example we, we do our job well uh, they could do better just i'll give you one example that when i was working in punjab not even once i was summoned by pakistan punjab assembly's education committee to come and talk about my portfolio i reached out to muslim league myself and asked mashud that i want to present to muslim league parliamentary committee that what reforms we are trying to do and he gave me some time i mean the point is that i mean the real scrutiny should come from the parliament because they have the mandate and they have the authority parliamentary committees in the provincial level also parliamentary committees they should be able to scrutinize it last one that nadeen is that you know human rights are part of our fundamental rights in pakistan since 1973 constitution and we should work on it on our own why should we why should other countries ask us to work on that but for the last many years the national commission for human rights is vacant position is vacant no budget is given to them provincial commissions are vacant so you actually the local human rights infrastructure which pakistani state should actually equip and give money and equip with the officials and people um, is not is dysfunctional and then international community comes in to say oh we should work on women or work on disability others and then we say why they are objecting to it i mean the problem is that i mean we are almost like i mean the indicator the side but dr adam bazam says that if you live in islamabad is is like living in spain or something so you have almost a middle class life and middle class culture in pakistan even then we are we kind of you know the state operators work like the way we are working in east africa there's very very weak capacity and we should put our acts together Uh, to make it work for us not just for 10% of the aid money by the way the 90% of rest of the budget money also which is pakistani taxpayers money and we should do our job well to kind of you know spend that thank you javed sir very good uh, masood abibi i'll give you the last word on human rights i think us needs human rights too but nobody tells it to have a human rights committee but we do but uh, my question to you masood that would be apart from whatever else you want might want to say can we move ahead without a civil service reform har cheez ye main baat uski keh raha hu jo thane kachari ke masle hain gaon dehat ke logon ke masle hain har cheez ko aap ek international security ka wo angle na dein ye pure ke pura ek bilkul different narrative aap bana rahe hain wo main nahi samajhta ye please fair point let's ask masood to have the last word masood baby go ahead yeah so basically uh, what would you have to say like uh, a lot of uh, i think all the useful things have been said um, and the positions are, i think are also coming out clearly that uh, there's one uh, which is i think mine and and manchur on attribute positions to somebody else but i think mine and dr hak says a bit closer which is a bit more cynical of um, the aid and the agenda it comes with and and, um, and one thing is the agenda and the other thing is i actually really feel the ability that um, you know the fact that it's 10% of aid but it influences almost 90% of our policy this you know javed the figure you give us is in fact the the worrying thing that the little money they have the system is such 
if maybe it's weaker capacity or whatever you blame it, that they end up influencing the 90% as well, a, a very heavy part of it. So that's a big concern actually for me. Um, and it's an established concern actually in the literature too, not just in Pakistan, but in many countries, donors are able to have, outweigh the actual money they put in and influence the country policy. So all of these are concerns. We need to do something about it and answers. Um, and I found, uh, by the way, uh, Fahim, your uh, slide very useful. It's good that you've been compiling this kind of data. But uh, the whole thing is way forward. Let's focus on that. And um, and as always, uh, it's easier to criticize than to find answers or solutions, what to do forward. I do personally, I think on the uh, on the NGO bit, I'm a bit concerned that it maybe it's getting a bit too heavily regulated, especially with the interior ministry and all of those things coming in. So I am with Javier that maybe PCP and these kind of organizations, which can test more the substantive quality of the work they're doing, should be monitoring them, not necessarily monitoring, I mean, regulating them rather than interior ministry doing it. So we shouldn't, uh, you know, we should create space for organic kind of participation and these kind of laws can stifle all kind of participation. So I'm a bit concerned about that. But as for aid in general, um, uh, to be honest, I'm one of those who have seen it long enough. I, when I finished my book, I must say, and if you read the preface to the book, I say that, that oh, after finishing the book and all of that, um, I've done some more work and I'm a bit more optimistic again, that maybe given that resources are limited, developing countries can stay engaged with it and use it more effectively. Because I was very cynical by the end of the research I'd done in Pakistan, uh, which was actually for my doctorate thesis, which became a book that you mentioned. But actually, in the long term, I've again become very cynical. And um, and it's not to say that, because I was part of a wonderful project on the whole, uh, just like uh, the Javed's experience in Punjab, that you feel very positive about what was done in that education sector. You were involved, you saw it. I was part of a similar kind of, like I said, pro program in Northern Nigeria, in Nigeria across the whole, and Northern Nigeria in particular. Apparently, good things were happening. My model was so useful. You know, children in Quranic schools were suddenly learning because of my intervention. I'd adapted some of these black uh, things uh, and introduced modern subjects to them. But in the long term, did it achieve anything? I would say nothing. We just distracted the energy of the bureaucrats because there was a lot of corruption in the system. We couldn't incentivize to them to cooperate because of this big money given to them, and, you know, per diems, all of that. By the end, the energy was wasted. Our energy was wasted. I don't think anything was achieved long term. So I, frankly, I'm not the best person to say what can be done with it. I just say cynical of it. I do feel that internal reform has to happen, whether civil service reform or um, how to build your state capacity is the is ultimate question and how to build political will. I must say, I was a bit hopeful that with Imran Khan in power, my political affiliations come out. I was a bit, uh, we thought that at least the political will issue might be solved, you know, as opposed to the previous politician. Here is a man I'm committed, I'm at least sure of his commitment to reform. But uh, but but again, one individual person will isn't enough. You need political elites to uh, to have and invest. In fact, what we, I'll finish with that. This literature on political settlements, uh, where it's, it's an obvious point, but the point is that unless your political elites have the incentives to reform, you're unlikely to bring any kind of change, any kind of donor money can come to you. They'll use that money for their incentives rather than a, a reform. So how do you, we go back to the classic challenges, which is how to build your political will and how to have an efficient civil service to deliver it. And I think in Pakistani context, I don't know how much you're willing to touch the military, but the fact that military is heavily involved in governance, you know, all these three actors, reform lies with them not with development agencies. That's what I would say. I'm finished. Thank you very much, Masooda. Thank you very much, Javed Saab. I have nothing much to add. I, I think all made some very good points. Uh, Javed Saab, I agree with you entirely that the fault lies with us and we have to wake up. But as large amount of literature shows that what matters really is your own ideas, your own knowledge. Development is all about knowledge gathering. 
It's not about machines. It's not about anything. My classmate Paul Romer won the Nobel Prize last year for saying that. It is an idea business, and we have to be in the idea business where they were far too clever. Going back to the 1950s cartoon, they realized if they make us idea dependent, through money dependence, we will remain in there. Now, this sounds like a conspiracy. I don't mean it to sound like a conspiracy. Let's go back to the diary of the economic hitman. I used to think it's a joke, but it seems now that it's a reality. It doesn't have to be that somebody is manipulating the system, but the way that, that's the way the system works out. But it's not a conspiracy. It's our own incapacity to make reform. And our own capacity to make reform ties in with our own capacity to, incapacity to generate ideas, which is why I'm interested in universities. Let me just say this. When I came back from my studies, everybody was going to local university. That is the only form of employment. All of us went and got lecture positions in all Pakistani universities. Those same people gradually migrated to NGOs exactly. from there to international positions like myself. From there back to NGOs. And unless we begin to understand that, and this is what I keep writing about, unless we begin to understand that the game is a talent game and we harness our own talent instead of letting people like Masuda, Atifnia, etc., go overseas, harness them at home. US takes our best talents and makes it develop. And US gives us this is the paper again that Ali Khan and I did in 97. It's available on the website. We have shown properly through any theoretical means that you like mathematically, etc., that the best talent does not render itself available for aid. Only the secondary talent comes into aid. The best talent remains in entrepreneurial activities. This is another thing that was proven by Baumel too. So we won't go there. We'll take up this session again sometime. Thank you very much, Masuda. Thank you very much, Javed. Thank you very much, everybody. Please stay with us on our learning journey. We are trying to ask tough questions and learn. When, when we say something, please don't take it as an opinion. It's a question because we are trying to learn. Thank you thank all. You. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Very accessible. Thank you very much. Well done. Thank you. I really enjoyed being part of it. And Javed, thanks for the good comments. Thank you. Thank you.